God is worth, worthy to be worshiped. Amen. I was uh, pulling out of my driveway this morning, and the street I live on is a dead-end street. It's a quarter of a mile long, and I wasn't even a quarter of a mile down that quarter of a mile pulling away from my house when I didn't come face-to-face with the Lord saying, okay, Jeff, today it's either me or it's you. One of us will be glorified today in your life. It's me or you. And I prayed in that moment and all the way in, Lord, I want it to be you. I desire for it to be you. And, and it's that backdrop because that's a challenge. Don't we find that? We all wake up with this desire to put God first. But many times our follow through doesn't always help us end up that place. I ask you to take your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 3, Ezra chapter 3, and when you get there, you're going to go to verse 1, you'll wait on me, I'll be there in just a minute. If you're using that pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 537, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, I'll be there in just a minute. I read an article this week from Psychology Today, and the title or the topic of that is how to tell what is really important to you. How to tell what is really important to you. There was a statement in there that the author, Seth Gillahan, said, show me your schedule, your calendar, and I will show you your priorities. The author aims to help busy people align their lives with what they truly care about. I read in this article that we all have things that we want to get to, but they seem to be enslaved behind the things that we treat as important. And we many times do not get done the very things that we desire to do because we are busy doing the things we think we have no choice in doing. He goes on to say that... um, Often what people tell me their priorities are versus what I see on their calendars are completely opposite from each other. So church, let me begin to help you focus on what do you spend your time on? This final statement I pulled from this article is, you must take accountability. You are where you are because of the choices and actions you have taken. Have you noticed that I didn't say that that was a good place or a bad place? Every single one of us finds our place, finds ourselves someplace right now. And where you are, that place that you find yourself in right now, is because of the choices and the actions that you have taken. We must acknowledge the truth as that is the start of making changes. If all of a sudden you find yourself in a place that you do not desire to be, you hold the power to be able to make changes and choices that can adjust where you are. And of course, I'm going to believe and I'm going to seek to go back to what the Lord said to me this morning. Jeff, it's either me or it's you. One of us is going to be glorified in your life today. Who's it going to be? That's where we find ourselves this morning. Now, before we go to Ezra, 
where I'm going to read there, I was drawn by this very statement in this article to the challenge that Paul himself faced in his life. And it's in Romans chapter 7. Let me just read these verses to you to sort of set the table of where we're going in Ezra. But Paul is talking in Romans chapter 7, and he starts in verse 18. And you can just write that in your notes. But he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of mind. Did you notice the struggle that we face that Paul was facing? between who's going to get the glory in your life today. As God said, Jeff, you or me will get glory out of your life today. What's it going to be? Paul says in verse 24, still in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who can free me from this struggle? Verse 25, He says, I thank God that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, I'm in a desperate struggle of who gets the glory in my life. How can I win this battle? And the answer is simple. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And that's how. But I noticed that what Paul said, which is what triggered in verse 23, he made this statement that this battle was bringing me into captivity. In Ezra, that's what we're dealing with right now, is the people being set free from captivity, the ability, which is what we talked about last week. And if you missed that, you can go online and catch that up. That way you won't miss a thing. But let's stand together and read Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Ezra Chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 says, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Verse 5, afterwards they offered the regular burnt offering, and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs 
from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Keep your scripture open right there. You may be seated. We're going to spend just a few minutes talking about, you notice in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 3, it says in the seventh month. That would be the seventh month since they had left captivity. The seventh month since they had been able to return home. Now, this seventh month, it's mentioned more than once, and we're going to talk about it in just a little bit more detail in a few minutes, but this seventh month was probably the most important month in the life of Israel, God's people at that time. This month, this seventh month is called Tishri. Now, I may not say it right, but that's how my mind reads it. But Tishri, and it would be our September, October time frame. We're going to talk a little bit about that again in a minute. I just want you to know it's the seventh month. Cyrus says you're free to go. We talked last week about how slightly less than 50,000 people left, and it, they took a four-month journey. If you look, if you've got your passage open and you're on 3-1, just look back at chapter 2, verse 70. It said, So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers and the Nethanim, dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So it's interesting. These nearly 50,000 people that left captivity to go back to their homeland to do the plans of God that we talked about last week. Scripture says that it's a four-month journey. It's now the seventh month, so there's three months unaccounted for right there. But this Scripture 270 says that they all went home. Do you know it's interesting? We get this. In Shelbyville, when you say you live in Bedford County, most of Bedford County says they live in Shelbyville. Some live in Unionville. Some live in Flat Creek. Some live in Bellbuckle, Beach Grove. You name, you know these places that um, people live. And so when I go home, I don't go home. I live in Bellbuckle. So when I go home, I'm going to Bellbuckle. And so Scripture teaches that when they left, these 50,000 people left to go back home, they went to their own cities to dwell. Now, that's an important thing to understand because we what we'll talk about here in a minute. But just imagine, you've been gone for 70 years. Your city, your temple, your walls, your areas have been totally laid waste by the enemy 70 years ago. You get a chance to go back home. It takes you four months to get there, and you're back home. Can you imagine what the house looks like? These people were probably extremely focused and busy for three months doing what? Taking care of their own home. Putting stuff back together again. Maybe rebuilding. Maybe 
fixing up. I don't know, but it was probably a very busy time in their lives. But Scripture says that in 270, they all went home and they were there for about three months. But look at what verse 1 says. And when the seventh month had come, so now the four-month journey is over, the three months that they've spent at home in their own cities is over, that the children of Israel gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, when I read that, you know, when, you, when it says together as one man, that says all the people came. All the people were unified. Now, it would have been very easy to have not come. There are people this morning who aren't here because something got in the way. Right? Well, I mean, that's reasonable. We're not judging that. We're just saying that that's a factor. We allow things to distract us from time to time. And if all of a sudden you've been gone for 70 years, you come back to your house after a four-month trip, you've got three months putting stuff together, there's likely, you're not probably done yet. You've not, you, Angela and I knew when we moved in, and we're, we're not the example people, but when we moved in, we're both type A, high level. When we moved, we were hanging pictures on day three. You know when you're hanging pictures on day three, you know you're done, right? That's when you're done. Some of you moved into your house three years ago and your pictures are still someplace you don't know. We understand what it's like to have to put everything back together again. But Scripture says that on this first day of the seventh month that all the people gathered as one man. What distracts you? What can cause you to lose sight of what you know you should be doing? You see, Israel was let go for the specific purpose of being able to go back to the homeland to build the temple and its walls and the city back. But they got a chance to go home, spend three months, and I wonder what their temptations were to just stay at home but they didn't. And that should be a challenge to each of us that we should not allow anything, anything to separate us from the purpose and the plan that God has called us to in his word. I got one. You guys get that? But don't we allow almost anything else to distract us. Therefore, the challenge that Paul faces, because I'm not fully, fully, I'm really in this struggle. That's why the Lord has to face me, not even a quarter of a mile, down a quarter of a mile road from my house going, Jeff, you or me are going to be glorified today by your life. Who's it going to be? God says, you need to put me first. But as one man, think about what a powerful statement that is. You know, I've had people ask me, Jeff, how many people go to First Baptist? Well, if you've been going to First Baptist a long time, you know that there were generations ago where we would, if you breathed and even said the word first, we made you a member. When I came on staff 12 years ago, 
there were over 6,000 people on the roll. Now, that's not true anymore. But if you'll recall those yellow sheets, and if you've not filled one out, I would encourage you to do that. But those yellow sheets, when we put our church communication program together, remember church, we came to everybody and we said, please fill out this yellow communication sheet and tell us all this stuff. And so everybody who responded got put in what we call our church community builder. It's an app on my phone or on the computer that we have in the office. It is everybody had to provide. Right now, if I called it up on my phone, the number would be like 685 people have given us their information to put them in the church community builder role. So I'm going, how many people am I responsible for? Well, at least 685, plus everybody who's in this building right now who's not yet taken time to fill that out. But I'm back to the power of, as one man, they came together. What happens, church, if we First Baptist, every single we, all 685 of us, plus everybody who's here that I don't even know you're part of that number, and you know, you know if you are or not, but what happens if we come together as a body of believers as one man? All of us. Wouldn't that be pretty powerful? Of what God can do if all of us came together, unified for God's purpose. That's what's happening right here. These people are coming together. Church, what could we accomplish for the kingdom? What could God accomplish through us if we prayed as one man, served, gave, taught, memorized scripture? If we would deprioritize self and prioritize God's purpose for our life, what a powerful movement of God would happen in this church. And do you know that every powerful movement of God that happens in the local church happens because God is moving powerfully in the people who call that church home. So I want to encourage you. One man coming together for God's purpose. Why is it important that you're here? Because this is where God has brought you. This is what you call home. And I hope that it's we come together to seek the Lord. But he calls us to come together if we would come together as one man. But do you ever get distracted? Look at verse 2. Then, and I couldn't get any further. You see, all these people came together in one mind, in one heart, together. And then, which tells you that they were getting ready to do something. Then. This is their first action after coming together. Do you know I have found in my own life and in the life of people that I get to talk to and counsel with and walk with in life that what you do first is very revealing about your priorities. I use the example of marriage counseling. I'll sit down with a young, soon-to-be husband and wife. They're not yet. And I ask them, I said, what should be the most important thing in your life? Well, they're sitting in the pastor's office, so they give me the Jesus answer. Well, Jesus is supposed to be number one in my life. That's a good answer. But then I shift it and I say, but what is the most important thing in your life? And if they're honest, 
Jesus rarely makes it. And it's not because they're bad. They just face the same struggles that we're facing. And this world has taught us that if we don't love our spouse more than anything, we're not a good spouse. That if we don't make our job priority number one, we're not a good employee. That, you, know, you see where we're going with the world? And so I challenge them about what's first. Or I go a different way. Angela and I, we know, we have friends, had a house fire, lost everything in a moment, lost it all. Makes you think about what you would do if you lost it all. And it makes you think about what would you do first if you lost it all. It would reveal a lot about who you are, where to begin. So what we're talking about is what they did first, then. Look at verse 2. Then Jeshua and Zerubbabel and his brethren arose and built the altar of God. Did you notice that? Jeshua would be the priestly rep. He comes from the line of God set aside. So he would be the spiritual leader. Zerubbabel, not that he's not a man of faith, but he is the, a God-appointed civic leader. And so you get this spiritual leadership and this civil leadership, and they are coming together with all of the people. And these leaders do what leaders must do. You know what leaders must do? They must lead. And they led. And they led strongly. And in front of 50,000 people coming together for the purposes and the plan of God, all in one heart, all unified as one man, they came together. And then the first thing they did, Scripture teaches us, verse 2 said that they arose and built the altar of God. When I talked about these leaders stepping up and leading, it caused me to really seek the Lord and say, Lord, how can I expect and call people and lead people to fully yield their lives to you if I'm not fully yielded to you? Thus the battle that we face. Thus the battle that Paul teaches about. Thus the, I'm not a quarter of a mile down, I'm not a quarter of the way down a quarter of a mile on my road before the Lord says, Jeff, you or me are being glorified today because of your life. Who's it going to be? We face that battle every day. And these leaders, they led. They did the first thing that they thought they needed to do, and Scripture says that they rebuilt the altar of God. Now, we're sitting in a desolate, walls down, cities down, temple down kind of spot. People are all coming together, and they decide that the most important thing is to set up the altar first. And you go, well, I wonder why they did that. What drove them to make that first? Well, it doesn't take much for us to understand that it was their failure to worship God the Lord and serve him first and to serve him only 
that led to the destruction of the city, the temple, the altar, led to the last 70 years of captivity. And so they walked out of this knowing that something had to change. You know, if God leads you to change and you don't change, then God has every right to put you back into the captivity because you've not learned yet. You know, my mom, she'd lay into me pretty good. And I'd have to decide through all of that discipline and punishment, was I going to learn or not? Was I going to change or not? And so they arose and they built the altar of God and, and on it, why? So that they could offer offerings that the way God had required. You see, when I boil down what happened to them years ago, what got them in captivity to begin with is because they were unfaithful. They were disobedient, they had a lack of commitment, and they had other priorities. So verse 3 says that in this seventh month, this unified group of people built the altar. But it notice what it says in verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people. That would be non-believers. Freshly back, under the plan of God, all unified together, doing the right thing first, and they're dealing with fear. Fear is a real thing. Amen? I deal with fear. I'll tell you now. Fear is real. And they immediately, upon making this decision that honored God, faced persecution, faced challenges. You know, it's interesting. They were seeking to act not unfaithfully, disobedient, lack of commitment with other priorities, which is what got them in trouble. They were seeking to do the right things, and immediately, as they chose to do the right things, they were challenged in their faithfulness, their obedience, their commitment, and their priorities. You see, the things that God calls us to do, the things that we're challenged to do, when we do them, they are the right things for us to do, but it doesn't mean that we don't face challenges in this world. If you're looking for a challenge-free place, I haven't found one yet. Now, sometimes we get mistaken in thinking that if we go along with the world, it'll be more comfortable. But as a child of God who chooses to live for the world, that is not a comfortable place. That leads you into captivity. But as a child of God who is free from captivity, asked to be faithful in this world, when you're faithful, you still face challenges. So church, we need to understand that when I was driving down my road today, and the Lord said, one of us is going to be glorified today in your life. Who's it going to be? I wasn't choosing between easy and hard. I was choosing between right and wrong. Because 
both bring their challenges. So they immediately faced challenges because of people around them. Now, last week, I discussed that God calls His people to the difficult things, if you recall that from last week. Well, it made me think, you know, having two boys, uh, I, the first one, and I watch it when I'm playing disc golf out here, there's um, T-ball. You play T-ball, right? T-ball's easy. Put the ball on the stand, you hit it, you run, and you try to play T-ball. And then you graduate up from T-ball to coach pitch. And I watch these coaches pitch it and try to teach them and all this stuff. And then once you graduate from coach pitch, you graduate to what I'll call kid pitch. So when Caleb was playing coach pitch with coach dad, we would stay after and watch kid pitch games because we were getting ready to move up to the kid pitch area of life. And I remember this day, clearly we were sitting on the bench and the kid would get up there and he would throw it as hard as he could. He had no idea where it was going to go. And he'd hit a batter. And that batter would ooch and ouch and go down. And sometimes you'd cry because, you know, the way coach pitch don't make you old. It's just you're young and you're learning stuff. And then he'd hit another one. And then one would fly over here or over here and he'd hit another one. We know this. We've seen this before. My son looks over at me and he says, Daddy, I don't want to play next year. And we didn't. We shifted over to what they call the Hilliard Gardner Softball League in this town, right? We have it. I think it was created because kid pitch was killing people. <laughs> but what has to happen in our lives, church, is when we face fear, when we face challenges, we make decisions about how we're going to live our life. And when it's hard, we sometimes choose to walk away from it. But as children of God, we have been called right into the difficult things of God that lead to the blessings of God. But we think that if we don't go to the kid pitch league, life will just be easy. And it doesn't always work out that way. I alluded last week to the fact that Jesus has called us to the narrow path. That narrow path leads to righteousness, which means that every other path that's not the narrow path does not lead to righteousness. The narrow path will challenge your faithfulness, your obedience, your commitment, and your priorities, the same things that the children of Israel are trying to put back together again because they're coming out of captivity. What will you do when fear creeps in? What will happen to your faithfulness, your obedience, your commitment, your priorities when fear creeps in? I got stuck on marriage counseling. I'm counseling a couple of young couples right now, and um, I always spend time talking about, what are you afraid of? And they look at me like, so are you talking about like spiders and stuff? And I go, I just ask you what you're afraid of. But yeah, if you're afraid of spiders, this would be a good time for you to bring it up. Because do you know 
And it's not always this way, but do you know if one spouse is afraid of spiders, you know what the other person has to become? The spider killer. We understand this in relationships, but we talk about fear, but and until we get through the spiders and mouse and dogs and all these things that we're afraid of, and we really get to the real point. Couples talk about what really they're afraid of. Yeah, you can be afraid of spiders, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about commitment. We're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about all these things. And then I have a conversation with them, and I go, what are your dreams? You mean, what did I dream last night? No. I'm talking about what are your dreams? What do you want to see happen one day? Because if one of you all wants to retire and have a food truck on the beach one day, your spouse needs to know that's a dream of yours. Because what I'm trying to teach them is that until you face your fears, you will not overcome them. And until you overcome your fears, you will never share your dreams with your spouse. Until fears are faced and confronted, a person will be unable to recognize and achieve their dreams. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he puts us in that exact situation. He said, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you abundant life. The enemy wants to make a big deal of your fears, and I want to make a big deal of your dreams. And until you face them all, you won't face any of them. You see, we're always in a struggle. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3 says that they set the altar on its bases. They rebuilt the altar where God originally chose to put the altar in the temple as he defined it. The altar was destroyed, but when they built the new altar, they put it back on its basis. I think that's really cool. Because, see, it's possible today that you have forgotten where God is, where your priorities are. You've allowed a fear to come over and all this stuff, and the Spirit of God might be saying, you need to come back toward God. And you're going, but I don't know how. Well, let me tell you, God hasn't moved. The base, right there. You return to the base, and God will take care of the rest. So they built this base. Verse 3 says, And they offered to the Lord morning and evening all the time. Now, I told you I was going to talk a little bit about this month for just a second, Tishri. First day of the month in Tishri, Israel has been called to um, recognize the Feast of Trumpets. It's a, his, it's a Christian, I mean, it's a is Jewish tradition that God instilled back in the law. On the 10th day of the month, they are to recognize the month of Tishri. They are to recognize on the 10th day, the Day of Atonement. And then on the days 15 through 21 of Tishri, they are to go through what is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And so when they're coming back together with this newfound faith and commitment and priorities, and they get to do first of all the things they've got to do, they are going to rebuild the altar because that's where God said, you'll find me. And I've called you to do this. And it says that they began to do all the things as God called them to do. And every single one of those things is about remembering, seeking, honoring, worshiping, putting God first. They put their worship and their praise of God first. Verse 6 says, although the foundations of the temple have not been laid. God led them and called them to worship Him first, most, everything. And God was not worried about, was the temple ready yet? Do you know what God is most worried about? And worried and God don't go together. So, you know what God is most desirous of? Is for you to allow Him to be the absolute object of your life in all that you do. You see, yep, nobody on this, nobody in this building right now lives on my road. So nobody was driving down my street like I faced this morning, but every single one of you were on a road this morning. And the Spirit of God, listen for him, might say to you, okay, you or me are going to be glorified today because of your life. Who's it going to be? Israel said, man, I'll do anything to not go back to where we came from. But that's not why they did it. They did it because they recognized that God is worth it. God is worth being your number one priority. God is worth being your focus. God is worth all of these things in your life. He's worth being first. They worshiped although. Remember it said that although the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. When you look around, they got a nice altar, a lot of people doing this, and then the rest of the place looks like a bomb went off. It's a great image we can have right there. God says, listen, you put me first. I'll take care of the rest of it. But so many times we get so distracted on trying to fix the temple and its walls and our houses and life that we forget to do the very first thing that God has called us to do. So they worshiped God, although all the rest of this stuff needed to be done. They praised God, although all of these things had to be done. They offered to God, although everything still needed to be done. They did this first. Now, I wrote down four scriptures. If you're a note taker, I want you to write these scriptures down because these are going to validate. I'm not going to read them right now. But 1 Samuel, all of these have to do with God's desiring our hearts more than anything else. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Hosea 6, 6. Mark chapter 12, begin reading in verse 28. 
But this goes right back to Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 6, 33, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you. Now, it's interesting. I'm getting to wrap up here, so stick with me. Verse 8 says that in the second month of the second year, they began work. So let's do just a little bit of math for just a second. We're in the second month of the second year, and assuming, and I did for the purpose of this conversation, that a year has 12 months. When you're in the second month of the second year, you're 14 months in. The first seven of those were four months travel, three months at home. On the first day of the seventh month, all the people came together. And on the first day of the second month of the second year, or the 14th month, they began the work. So for seven months, 14 total, seven already, for, for seven months, they worshiped. They praised. They offered. They got their hearts in line with what God would have them to do, and God began to prepare them, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave in order to do the work that God had for them. Now, I'm going to severely oversimplify this, but I don't think I'm going to spiritually miss a point. If you will worship and praise God first, and first, and first, God will prepare you take care of everything else. But the fact that they took seven months does not mean that they drug it out. It means that God kept them in it. And so they were in this recommitment back to God for seven months before they began the work. We, church, we like to begin the work and then ask God to get involved in it. That's backwards. God says, you seek me. And if I need you to do anything else but seek me, I'll let you know. And when I let you know, then do that. And for seven months, God said, you just keep seeking me. You just keep seeking me. And then they got the freedom. in the second month of the second year to begin to build. So in that seven months, what did they do? Well, they were honing their praise, their worship, their faithfulness, their obedience, their commitment, and their priorities, which are the very things that got them in trouble to begin with. And they had come to know that these were the foundations to build the appropriate relationship with God. That's what God wants from you. They're so important that they came first. Here's the question as we turn toward home. Is praise and worship of our most holy God first for you? God said, Jeff, me or you are going to be glorified today by the way you live. And I desire for it to be God glorified in my life. What's your desire? And then Paul says, you're going to find that desire hard to live up to unless you fully yield yourself to Jesus. But when you fully yield yourself to Jesus, yeah, it's going to be hard, but Jesus said, I'll make it worth it. 
praise and worship are how we truly are to come before God. Jesus taught us this and he validated this in the model prayer. You remember the disciples said, Jesus teaches us how to pray. They saw Jesus spending time, spending time, spending time with the Father. And they said, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And in the model prayer, Jesus began, he said, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I believe that Jesus was teaching them literally in order of the things in prayer. And he said, the first thing you got to do is hallow the name of God. It is all about worship and praise. It is all about worship and praise. Until we appropriately can worship and praise God, nothing else can come from it. Worship and praise transform us into the identity that God has. Give you one final quote I read from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was not always the Christian man that his books tell us he is. He was early on in his life the atheistic man. But C.S. Lewis wrote this quote. He said, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. C.S. Lewis said, in order to achieve, you got to be on the right road. And if you're on the wrong road, you got to come all the way back and then get on the right road. They said, that's how you make progress, by getting on the right road. So church, I don't know what road you're on. I know I was on my road this morning, and God said, one of us, one of us. The Spirit of God is the one who leads us to where God wants us to be. I pray that you will allow the Spirit of God to lead you where He wants you to be this morning. Amen?